What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and I'm bringing to you another bonus episode. All right. So today's guest is Benjamin Boyce. All right. So those of you who don't know, Benjamin has a YouTube channel. He interviews a lot of different people from a variety of areas. And yeah, I really wanted to chat with him for a few reasons. And we talk a lot about this in our conversation. Um, but first I saw, I've seen him, I've seen him around a little bit on Twitter. He's popped up on my YouTube a little bit, but I saw a video he made about the libs of TikTok account on Twitter. And he said something that I've been thinking about for a while. And we chat about this, uh, in this conversation, but then I started to dive into some of his interviews. I started to follow him on Twitter and I'm like, Benjamin is an interesting dude. And I'm so glad I got to sit down and talk with him because his YouTube personality is much different than his Twitter personality. And I'm always curious about that because there's a lot of people you'll see like that in this conversation. I mentioned people like James Lindsay, who, if you're familiar with him on Twitter versus some of the books he's written, it's, it's night and day. And I've, I've always wondered about that. And, you know, Benjamin actually has some answers for that, but I'm also, you know, uh, huge about talking with people that we disagree with, but to phrase that better, I, I believe the best way to say it is people who we think we disagree with, right? A lot of what I've found through these conversations and reading books, even by people who I feel I disagree with, there's so many things that we actually agree on, but I don't know. It seems like conversations are framed in a weird way and things like that. So, you know, uh, on the surface, it seems like Benjamin and I might disagree about a lot of things, but we actually do agree on a lot of things. And we were able to have some nuanced conversations, but it was interesting too, because when I told some people I was uh, talking with Benjamin, they were like, what that guy? I'm like, Hey, Hey, let's, let's see what happens. And Benjamin is a really cool guy. Uh, I don't know if we agree on everything, but he definitely has a curious mind. And I realized how much we're on the same page when it comes to critical race theory, some of the conversations around, you know, wokeness and things like that. But yeah, this was a really cool conversation. I'm super glad that he was able to come on. So make sure you head down to the description, follow Benjamin over on Twitter uh, if you want some entertainment and make sure you check out his YouTube channel. He has a lot of really neat conversations. Like I said, if you need to watch a few of his uh, interviews, you can see how curious he is. And I'll say it until the day I die. Like curiosity is one of the major characteristics that we all need. Like with all the insanity in this world, the polarization, the fighting, the arguments, like curiosity is something that we need so, so, so much. And that's something that I think Benjamin has a ton of is just curiosity. But anyways, before we jump into this, if you're not yet, make sure you're following me over on Instagram and Twitter at the rewired soul that's linked down in the description. That way you don't miss any upcoming episodes. I've been writing a ton so you can keep up to date with all of that. And if you're new to the podcast, make sure you are following or you're subscribed, whether it's on Apple, Spotify, whatever platform you enjoy listening on. And for those of you who don't know, I also upload some of these over to the YouTube channel. YouTube is one of my bigger platforms, but I've just mainly been uploading these interviews and it's just the rewired soul over on YouTube. So this one uh, with Benjamin will actually probably be going up soon as well. But anyways, without further ado, here is my conversation with the one and only Benjamin Boyce. Oh, 
All right. Hello, Benjamin. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Good. How are you doing, Chris? I am fantastic. Excited to be chatting with you. So uh, for, for those of my audience, because I usually just have authors on here. This is one of my mm. phenomenal bonus episodes with interesting people. So for Thanks those books. who have yet to meet you, is that a book you've written? Yeah, I have like seven books uh, in what a pile the? over there. Nobody, nobody tells me anything. So well, I'll no, I keep them hidden. Really? Are they available? Well, um, I, I have a Substack that's eking them out one chapter at a time. Ah, gotcha, gotcha. So, okay, well, I guess, I guess, give me, give me the backstory. Who are you? What do you do? <laughs> what do you, what do you write about? What do you talk about on your, on your YouTube channel slash podcast? Yeah, well, uh, there's two parts of my life. The first part, well, I mean adult life. So 20s <laughs> onward from probably around 18, 19 or 20, I uh, pursued the life of a cafe barista, poet, uh, author of novels oh. and a preschool teacher. And then at about 36, I uh, needed to take a break from the workforce and go into the white tower of academe mm -hmm. uh, seeking as I was accreditation. I wanted to be you know, intellectual. So, you know, mm -hmm. not just somebody who's intellectual and then, uh, you know, a worker. So I found a college, uh, in Olympia, Washington called the Evergreen State College, which is a very particular place. It has, uh, a very particular, or at least it had a very particular model of education that was focused on independent learning, a lot of very self-directed study and mm -hmm. the structure of the school, uh, was very immersive. And for people who really want to get deep into one thing or another, and I had already put in about two and a half million words, you know, down on paper, just like typing and typing and typing and yeah. retyping and retyping and retyping. So I, I thought that that would be spacious enough for me to focus and really dig deep. And so I, you know, took a break from work and I just spent all my time in the library and at different classes, uh, trying to pursue a particular brand of fiction that kept on breaking for me mm -hmm. um, because I don't think it was supposed, I don't think you're supposed to write this way, but this is how I had to do it. Yeah. And then while I was at the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, I was being immersed, not inoculated, inoculated, but immersed in a uh, particular strain of progressive ideology that went critical, uh, at the very end of my time at Evergreen and then proceeded to go critical across all of academia and all of media and many different, especially education and certain parts of the media. And mm -hmm. we can also see this same virus or, uh, I guess not virus in a necessarily it depends that, that that's a loaded term morally or valuation wise, but it is very infectious and it does create a very particular, um, MO for whatever institution it mm. takes over. So, uh, because of what, how things went viral at Evergreen and by viral, I mean, the students protested for a week yeah, and they filmed it all on their cell phones and streamed that all to the internet. And the ways in which they acted were totally beyond the pale. And a particular professor, Brett Weinstein, uh, tried to reason with them that was on film. And then he was 
being kind of suppressed or not just the students, but his colleagues and then the administration Mm -hmm. were not giving his side or this other side of, um, the argument or the discourse, any sort of platform or taking it seriously. So he went and he began to speak out about it on Tucker Carlson, Joe Rogan, Dave Rubin, etc. Mm-hmm. And that created a shockwave. Uh, well, the student, what the students did and how they, f- how they acted and, and what they did by filming it created this very viral cringe compilation yeah. and, uh, on YouTube. And, but it was so salacious that it spilled over and it caught a lot of attention and it brought to light, uh, certain patterns of discourse or anti-discourse that were boiling up in other places, but particularly, um, contained and, uh, you know, kind of like a sauce. It was boiled down into the essence at Evergreen because of the way that Evergreen operates as this kind of magnifier of things. And so what I saw were a lot of people commenting on the footage and Brett Mm -hmm. Weinstein was speaking out, but what I had been doing while I was at Evergreen, while I wasn't working on my work was working in the media department and filming, Mm. being on camera at all these different seminars and workshops and lectures and seeing that there's just this one strain of progressivism that we can probably call woke or whatever you want to call it. There's a lot of different names for this thing. Critical theory depends on how uh, popular or how theoretical you want to get with the naming conventions. Um, but it was always being presented as the truth and any sort of questioning or pushback was suppressed or, you know, called Mm -hmm. out or, you know, slandered and Brett Weinstein particularly was witch hunted more or less for just criticizing this. And Brett Weinstein was very pro- progressive, very progressive individual, very yeah. you know, liberal or left individual. So the people were talking about the way that the students were acting, but nobody had seen how they were being taught. And ah. I had watched this with my own eyes and knew where the files were and did some FOIAs or uh, FOIA is a federal thing, uh, public records yeah. requests got all that footage and then started to archive the entire thing, the entire thing from probably 2014 up to 2017, which is when the explosion happened, all those workshop seminars. And then I compiled all that. Also, I did a lot of my YouTube channel was just covering Evergreen for a while, going through all the emails, going through all these different facets of the story and trying to bring up as much nuance into this, which is kind of what I was studying to do in literature to create this panoply of different pieces of data or different kinds of narrative, and then kind of make a symphony out of all these different kinds of uh, stories or different kinds of information, basically. Yeah. And so I, I spent a few years just covering that. And then I compiled all the footage into a documentary, um, like 24 episodes and a couple of epilogues, uh, to yeah. just lay the whole thing out. Yeah. So. So this is a conversation that, you know, keeps coming up. Like, uh, you know, we talked about, like I, I had John McWhorter on, I talked with mm-hmm. a lot of people from like fire. I had Bonnie Kerrigan Snyder on here talking about indoctrination in K through 12 schools. We'll get mm-hmm. to the critical race theory stuff in a little bit, but from what you're talking about with what happened at Evergreen, you saw the students acting in a particular way, right? Shutting down discourse, but mm-hmm. you, you saw this happening because of what the faculty was kind of presenting, like. If you could, can you, can you, can you kind of 
give me your theory for that because i i've been kind of hearing the narrative that you know it's these you know younger millennials slash gen z who's getting into this very woke ideology everything's racist transphobic misogynistic sexist you know what i mean but it has to come from somewhere right so do you see the generation before that getting these ideas and now teaching it to the college age millennials or tell me how you kind of see that from a broader sense well there's millennial and then there's kind of gen z too and didn't it kind of matters it kind of doesn't the mm-hmm. evergreen protesters were probably 19 to 22 so more gen z more having no memory of pre 9-11 no memory of pre-internet millennials mm. have at least a little bit yeah. of memory pre 9-11 pre-internet and those two things are at least america's response to 9-11 um shaped a certain sort of fear-based culture or security-based culture um and then the internet is its own thing so when you say where's this coming from it's got to be coming from somewhere prior to these youngins mm-hmm. but it's also being um shifted and sifted through the internet and you can see how the impact the internet is impacting the consciousness the group consciousness and the ideologies or the culture of these newer groups who are especially the teenagers who are going through processes of assembling their identity and, and mm-hmm. testing things and being kind of uh what was it dysregulated emotionally because they're teenagers you know yeah. um that plus the internet is pretty intense that plus kind of late individualism or late um liberalism that kind of has a individualist bent has caused i think on a cultural level a lot of uh older generation gen x of which i am a part and then millennials to kind of and and boomers to a certain extent but to kind of you know be individuals and kind of move around and not have a extensive family structure in a, a mm-hmm. very deep time uh regulated or time accrued relationship with a local community and so these these gen xers you know they mate and then they have these kids that are even further removed from a richer cultural time-based or like a long-form kind of relational local um situation and so i think part of it is that these young folks are looking for people looking for mentors looking Mm. for community that's not necessarily being satisfied by these kind of atomized families and that is being given to them through reddit through tumblr and lesser extent to twitter but twitter you can see it kind of spill over into twitter also 4chan and all these Internet yeah. thing. So the internet is one major thing, but with regards to the way that the, uh, the adults in the room, so-called respond to the students specifically in evergreen, specifically, if you just take evergreen and you just kind of, I, one of my theories is that evergreen is the Petri dish to show this ideology working out, but the internet is a big part of that because of the way that the actual protest was seated on Facebook and how the policing of communication and the sorting of people into villain and victim uh, happened through the internet, but it also happened in person. But there's that cohort. And then there is this place called Evergreen, very progressive. They come on campus, their orientation, and I have all the footage of these orientations, which got progressively more progressive as time went on until they kind of went to the end of being progressive and they had to start rolling back because this whole 
kind of MO of we are going to liberate the oppressed and we're going to solve racism. The first thing that the new president said in 2015, and then everything that happens after 2015 is that racism, uh, great strides were made during the civil rights movement, but racism is still alive and well. And it is our job basically to, to end racism. That is what we are here to do, which sounds like a big project yeah. <laughs> and right. So it's a big project, but also is the school or is academia particularly suited to doing that work, which is activist work, which is, you know, changing the world. Ooh. And you go back to this kind of Marx, Marx, uh, it's not cliche. He has that saying that Marx saying that philosophers so far had sought to understand the world. Our job is to change the world. So Evergreen became explicitly an activist college. And you see that happening with the American Psychological Association. You see that happening with many municipal governments. You see that happening across, you know, Coca-Cola. A lot of these corporations are saying our job is no longer to teach. It's to create a good society. So what happened at Evergreen was that the organization shifted toward being change agents specifically with race. And then they introduced a bunch of critical race theory, or they began to practice critical race theory. And mm -hmm. I have footage of these increasingly sanctimonious, more and more church-like events where mm -hmm. it would be garbed in data and PowerPoints and they show this yeah. data and even they're showing you this data that Evergreen's doing better than most every other place in, yeah. in America, at least with regards to, uh, serving the Latino and Latina community and serving, uh, students of color of all varieties. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, but while the, while those charts are up there, they're saying that we, this, the time is now we have to be better. We have to change. And then you have all these professors saying that Evergreen is as racist as any institution in the West historically. Yeah. And when we teach, uh, when we teach people to prize meritocracy, we're actually causing oppression. And when we, when we teach that all lives matter, we we're saying that black lives don't matter. And, and, and the way that they're speaking becomes more and more sanctimonious. And mm -hmm. that happens with the race thing. There's one quote where this person says that our job is when, when a black person speaks, we listen and we believe, mm -hmm. right? but which black person, like they all think the same, you know, that there, there's none of that. Like we just assume that the black people are hurting. And so what happens, there's a selection process on which black person is being listened to. And it's the one who inhabits this liberatory oppressed person gaining victory over that those who have victimized them, mm -hmm. which would be the entire institution. So ironically, you have this institution that's bending over backwards and dismantling its original mandate to be an institution of education, specifically to solve the problem of race, being accused by the students of being the most racist place yeah. in America or the world ever. That also happened with regards to the gender vector, where this pronoun thing started happening and everybody had to be, and it's not just, you have to declare your pronouns. There's no discussion about that. 
What does it mean that you declare your pronouns? What, what are we actually doing when we start doing that? What are we doing mm -hmm. to the language? What are we doing to our brains? And then what are we doing forcefully top down with our society and then our interpersonal relationships? No mm -hmm. question about it. This is just the thing to do. And then while we're doing it, no joking, this is really serious. Like this is life or death. People will kill themselves if you don't call them this, this word that they, mm -hmm. that they've ascribed to themselves. And it's just, yeah. and it got tighter and more and more intense. And yeah. then the students started to figure out how to game that. And when they gamed it, they would interrupt these meetings. And he, I have footage of like protest after protest after protest. And the administration would just let them do it. So yeah. they're, they're acting this out. So there's no pushback at all. Yeah. 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 That's that conversation about where the, you know, where are the adults in the room? You know what I yeah. mean? And I think that's kind of the issue that, you know, where people aren't talking about enough is that there's not enough pushback. We're taking things at face value and you're just kind of letting, especially this younger generation just come up and just kind of steamroll. Right. And I'm a, I'm a father and like, I, I have to push back on my own son and mm -hmm. be like, Hey, this is, you know, maybe we should talk about this or you're seeing this in the incorrect way. But, you know, mm -hmm. I want to I want to touch on that kind of catastrophizing. Right. Like we've mm -hmm. seen it with, uh, you know, the Dave Chappelle recent protests and everything like that. And everything mm -hmm. kind of turns into this just. Just extreme emergency. Right. People are dying. Or like you mentioned, like if we don't say Genocide. this correctly. People are going to kill themselves. And listen, like I'm a recovering drug addict. Most of my life has been, you know, uh, well, in recovery, at least since getting sober in 2012 has been like mental health, you know, advocacy. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about suicide and overdoses and stuff, things that are killing people. But I know if I push that to the extreme and I inflate the numbers or inflate the problem, I'm crying wolf. You know what I mean? I have to look at the mm. real data, see what's happening. And that's kind of what I saw with the Dave Chappelle debate. I was like, wait, so mm. are we to believe that there's like a genocide happening that, you know, I don't know about But Anyways, anyways, here's a question that I have for you uh, mm. in regards to like the critical theory, or I even asked guests about this when we're talking about what's happening in schools and college campuses. Do you see this happening on both sides of the equation? Like the catastrophizing, right? Like yesterday, for example, I, I was listening to someone commenting about the critical race theory, who's on the side of, we need to get this out of schools, right? Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I'm like, are you kind of catastrophizing this? They're like, think about the children. Our mm -hmm. children are going to think that they are these white devils. <laughs> I'm like, okay, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm, is it really mm -hmm. that bad? So I'm curious mm -hmm. if everybody from all parts of these debates are catastrophizing to an extent. What do you think? Uh, well, the catastrophizing is a certain... It's a, it's game theory. It's, it's a certain pattern of behavior in order to produce a result. Mm. And we are in the age of being overstimulated. Again, you go to the internet and how we get our news is that there's so much information presented to us that our brain actually sorts it according to threat level. Mm. Right? And that's an evolutionary principle. If you've ever gone out to your lawn and jumped because you thought you saw a snake and it's just a hose and you feel yeah. embarrassed. Like it's better to be embarrassed and a fool than mm -hmm. to actually get bit. And with regards to the internet, collapsing space and time, and then overloading us with information, we pay attention to threat. When we pay our attention to a threat, it magnifies the threat because more people are paying attention to the threat. And then our apparatuses of uh, sifting or the gatekeepers or whatever, the apparatus of sifting that is outside of us, 
is responding to what we pay attention to because of the model of the internet is to keep the eyes engaged, keep in people engaged and to mm -hmm. foster engagement. The most engagement is going to be the lowest part of your brain, which would be the fight, flight, or F-U-C-K. And yeah. what is the internet filled with? It's filled with pornography of all these different sorts. It's filled with pornography with regards to threat levels on all these things. And then with, you know, straight mm -hmm. up uh, classic, um, well, that, anyways, that's a whole other conversation, but when people catastrophize, they get attention. And so they bring attention to a thing. So does it over time, does that actually serve the, uh, well, the thing is the catastrophizing, it deflates after it's seen that the threat isn't as big as it's made out to be, mm -hmm. but at least it gets attention there, keeps attention there. And then you can start to herd people into some sort of activity, showing up to school board meetings. If you are showing that a Virginia school or where I think it was a Virginia school was in, in the library, it has some depictions of, uh, homosexual activity, like with fellatio in a comic book in the school libraries. Yeah. Um, now that's like, you see this stuff is being available to kids. The question is, well, they they can get it anywhere, but do we want it in schools? No, we don't want it in schools. So you can see, you can cherry pick or nut pick or whatever. You can see that this stuff that is implementing critical race theory, it's not critical race theory itself, but it's acting out critical race theory by describing basically the entire system of the U.S. as a sorting mechanism between the oppressor and the oppressed or the victim and the yeah. victor. And it's gone through by dividing people by race and then assigning these characteristics to those characteristics. If you are dark of skin, then you must be, you know, constantly aggressed upon micro and macroly, you know, okay which is really religious when you get into implicit bias, which is that, which is your soul. And then systemic racism, that, which is God, you have this stuff that's bigger than the human or lower than the human stuff that you can't really control. And if you start to build a framework like that, it gets religious, mm -hmm. but you talked to McWhorter, so I'm sure you guys dove into that just yeah. with regards to catastrophizing. That's a method of getting attention and then siphoning or, you know, uh, you know, not siphoning, but channeling that attention into action yeah so it's a useful tool but like you were saying with regards to drug advocacy and a lot of this advocacy it actually doesn't help the people that it's supposed to help especially a lot of the racial stuff could be broken mm -hmm. down into class and you see yeah i just interviewed a native american woman and she was saying native americans they're less than one percent of the population but we're constantly trotted out to get things done we're a symbol and so we are like, people are changing our language and, and changing the names of football teams while our communities are dying from yeah. alcoholism and drug. And then you go and she went into the all cops are bastards or the BLM riots. The indigenous were, you know, BIPOC, the indigenous were brought into that when they could actually use a good policing. They actually need that. There are women and there's a lot of domestic violence. There's a lot of drug mm -hmm. use. They could use reform in that, but defunding the police would absolutely hurt them. So, yeah. you know, so when, when we get to that level of politicking, a lot of that catastrophizing has a lot of unintended consequences other than the fact that it rewards those who do it. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh yeah. I've had, I've had some guests on recently, like Bacha Ungo Sargon about her book, uh, talking yeah. about woke media. Then I had uh, the vet yeah. Ramaswamy on talking about his book, Woke Eat. And, and yeah, like I see the woke 
conversations, the culture war issues, taking away from the real problems, like these class issues, these people who need, you know, uh, they need social workers, they need therapists. Yeah. Yeah, they need services and stuff like that. But if we're just like, so with the CRT thing, I want to ask you because since, mm-hmm. since you touched on evolutionary psychology and that's, that's my shit. I love talking about it. Right. So mm-hmm. when it comes to CRT, here's what I'm trying to understand. Like my son's 12. So the other day, the other, like a couple of weeks ago, I went to my son, I was hearing these conversations about CRT in schools. I looked at my son. So I'm half black. My son's a quarter black. So I look white. He looks whiter than I do. Right. I looked at him. I'm like, Hey, have you ever in school, have they ever taught you that just you're bad for being white? And he looked at me like I was just insane. He's like, what are okay. you talking about? Right. So yeah. this is, and so I commonly ask people like, how big of a problem is it? How many schools yeah. are doing it? You know, but I do understand like, Hey, we need to stop it before it grows. Like you talked about with Evergreen that could spider out. But anyways, going yeah. into evolutionary psychology, I've, I've had psychologists on talking about group identity. You see what pol- polarization, right? I identify as a conservative. Here are our values. Here are what we stand for. I identify as a liberal. I identify as a progressive. We sort ourselves into these groups. So, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Evolutionarily, we see people who look different and our brain just automatically does stuff, right? It says, oh, you look different than me. Why is that? Right now mm-hmm. to the extent I don't know. That's the debatable part. But I guess my question yeah. is, uh, your your buddy, uh, James Lindsay, he shared a sheet, you know, this being handed out, you know, to kids or whatever. And I looked at the, I looked at the paper. I don't know if you saw his tweet, but it said like, you know, talking about identities and which group and everything. I looked at it really carefully. I said, is there anything harmful? Is there anything in here that I was like, this can make a kid feel bad about who they are? I mm-hmm. didn't necessarily see it. So the mm-hmm. question is, do you think mm-hmm. that this shouldn't be taught at all? Because my concern is we're afraid to even have these conversations, almost like saying, don't talk about sexual education. Don't talk about boys and yeah. girls. Don't talk about, yeah. don't talk about how babies, are ready. you know what I mean? Like, yeah. should we completely yeah. eliminate it, eliminate it? Or you, you, yeah. you work with preschoolers. Like, is there a way yeah. to talk with kids about this in a realistic, non you're worse than another race type way? Yeah. Um, there has to be, uh, it's the human experience that, I mean, if we just go back to the bedrock of Western culture, it would be Judeo-Christian culture and then Greek culture kind of combining. And there's a lot of othering there. They're othering the Canaanites, you know, they're making these Philistines out to be huge monsters. We have to kill them, you know, like, you know, you see permutations of that going on to this day. So how do we manage if, if we aren't able to discuss tribalism, discuss the history of, uh, how tribalism has created race and perpetuated race or our notions of race, then how do we actually untangle it? And mm-hmm. what is the line between having those conversations and then saying, well, we need to solve this such as Ibram Kendith has written that we have to solve past discrimination with present discrimination and future. <laughs> future discrimination with present discrimination, which is just this Manichaean, just endless cycle of, uh, serpent eating its own tail. So can we talk about these things without, and, and transcend them? Can we have a transcendent relationship to the blood that courses through history, you know, and all that violence and all the, all the outcomes of, let's just say with African descendant of slaves, to what degree has uh, being a slave affected a family over generations and then Jim Crow, how are all these things affected? And in the wake of the evergreen protests, 
I started doing these videos on somebody who I had not yet really pissed off, um, that I respected. Uh, he came up to me and he said, well, there's this redlining stuff and there's the way that the black people have treated, you know, and I'm like, well, okay, there's that. And then there's all this footage of people being told when they can pee and people being told that white people need to do this and get black people water and black people, you know, attacking, you know, like the, the, the optics of the activism is completely ruined just optically. It's gotten out of hand. And why is that gotten out of hand? So if we're going to have those conversations, we're going to have to actually have the conversation about the conversation, which I guess yeah. is what the comp conversation is with regards to sexuality, with regards to sex that is now being infiltrated by this gender ideology that is not based on biology. It's based mm-hmm. on ideology. And that comes from critical theory too. It comes from a permutation of critical theory called queer theory. And the way that that's promulgated is that gender is your soul. And your body doesn't matter because we can just change your body to fit your soul. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's what you have now. And, and a lot of this stuff with regards to race and with regards to gender is happening really intensely in higher education and then really intensely in education, higher institutions, right? Institutions of education. So it's mm-hmm. being taught to the teachers and then the teachers are going into the schools. And to a greater or lesser extent, the teachers have to learn this stuff. And because of the ideological nature of it, it it sorts people into, can you go through this gender stuff? If not, then you're a bigot. You need to go. Can you go through these different trainings? If not, you're a bigot. You need to go. So it sorts people, even if they're not teaching it, they were either putting up with it and pantomiming it, or they actually kind of believe it and go along with it. And so that'll start to seep in. Yeah. So it. I don't think that if we want to revitalize and reform our education system, we have to get to nuts and bolts and say, okay, reading, writing, and arithmetic or something like that. We need to go back. We are trying to teach you skills, not behavior yet. And once we, once, once we ensure that you are at grade uh, reading level, Mm-hmm. Then we can start to introduce these really complex conversations about oppression and victimhood and how to yeah. solve that. Right. But uh, I spoke with a teacher at a high school in uh, Chicago and the building, their high school is falling apart. They have blackouts on electricity. They're mm. spending hun- tens of thousands of dollars on these diversity, equity, inclusion um, seminars, not fixing uh. the building. And then also what that has the effect of is that all the problems, which are not just in the physical you know, building, but in the education and the kids are not getting taught, all of that can be waved away and say, whiteness. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's the system. It's the system. It's the system. So nobody has to actually fix the system that isn't working because the system's already broken. We need to break it even further, you know? So We have to get back to brass tacks and ensure that kids are getting skills first and foremost, and then we can introduce really complex conversations because if they don't have the skills to read and write and think through these things, then what they're going to be doing is dumbing those ideas down of history of, of oppression and of oppressor, and they won't be able to even do anything other than just go full aggression with it. They will. And what happened at Evergreen is that the, the common uh, ability of discourse of having higher reason was all brought down to the lowest common denominator of you are the enemy 
if you don't get on board with changing the world and changing evergreen by having a stupid protest, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. No, I, 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 I love what you said about just, we need to have conversations about the conversation. So, yeah. so if I'm understanding what you're saying, right? Like, you know, race, these conversations about gender, like I, I don't see them going away anytime soon, but if I'm understanding you correctly, like there is, there is a conversation to be had, but it's a matter of when, like, when, like, is it after they learn the basics of, Hey, I could do math, I could read and stuff like that and how to implement them in a mature way. Just for example, uh, mm -hmm. I, I've had um, people on here like Dan Golden, he wrote a book, The Price of Admission about the screwed up college admission systems and how money plays a big role. Like if I have a dad who can donate a $10 million building, yeah. I'm probably getting in, right? And I have a 12 year old son and that's something I have to think about. I have to, I have to tell him, right? Like, you know, it's my choice, but I've decided to tell him like, hey, this college admission system can be rigged against you, but that's not a reason to give up and not try, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, well, I don't think, have you ever have... thought of using your YouTube clout to muscle your way, him into Yale? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I'm sitting at 81,000 subscribers. I don't know if that's enough. Like maybe, what? maybe if I get to, you know, like some James, <laughs> some, uh, James Charles numbers or Logan Paul or something, you know, but, but like, uh, when, when it comes to race, like, is that a, there a conversation to be had? Like, Hey, one day you might meet some racist ass person and here's how to deal with it. Like, because it seems like mm. parents are afraid to talk to their kids about race, right? They don't want teachers talking about it. So if parents aren't talking about it, if teachers aren't talking about it, yeah. who the hell is going to talk to kids about just some realities and the harshness of life? Do we need to get them each a mentor and say, Hey, here's what can happen. And you know, like, I, yeah, I don't know yeah. what you think the solution is because they are real things, you know? Well, within the critical race theory framework, not necessarily the theory itself, but the framework in which it is implemented, um, at least in Evergreen, and you can see this in the indoctrination or the orientation sessions, is that the individual discrete acts of racism are, they don't, they don't matter anymore. It doesn't matter if you don't act racist as a white person, mm. you are complicit in racism for not fighting against the racist structures, right? So it's not about even dealing with difficult situations on an interpersonal level, all interpersonal activity is projected onto this historical sociological framework. And so everybody's ego is inflated to, mm. and they talk about this, I am a black body, you are a white body. And then they just play pinball or pool and bash yeah. against each other. And so there, there's problems within the ideology that need to be very finely sussed out. And that's not going to happen on these CRT is bad, GOP, good, uh, Democrats, uh, good GOP racist levels of the, the federal, the federal consciousness, even the state consciousness is not capable of having the conversations to yeah. really say, okay, how do you deal with the effects of historical racism and the structures, uh, that have sorted people into, you know, based on race or based on any of these markers, probably the most important would be class and why that's not being yeah. talked about is because race insulates the elite from having to actually do that, which you probably talked about several times. Yeah. So it's really difficult to have those conversations. And what we need to do is create content that has those conversations Yeah. and, and model that because I think ultimately, ultimately people yearn for nuance, right? They yeah. yearn for questions and jokes and laughter 
and all the stuff that's outside of outrage culture or, or agreement, disagreement, basic opinionation that's happening on the internet. So with regards to schools, the structure of the schools is failing on several different vectors. Ideologically, we need to strip the ideology out and just say no ideology until we figure out what school is for. Yeah. And that's what it needs to be about. Um, and then we can rebuild, but at this point it's all a mess. It's just a huge mess. And so yeah, we're not having much. Yeah. yeah, it is. So, so let's, let's jump because something I've been dying to ask you about, because I see this often I, and like, there's a, there's a, I don't know. It seems like there's a real personality. Then there's like a Twitter persona, right? Oh. Right. So I'm hoping like, for example, you, you're good buddies with like James Lindsay, one of my favorite books. Oh. And I had Peter, I had Peter Bergosian on to talk about how to have difficult or impossible conversations. Mm-hmm. I read that book after I got canceled on YouTube and I was losing my mind. I was like, Wait, so you, were you canceled by the structure or by the commenters? Like, by the, or by the commentary other, actually the other drama creators. the drama channels if if you ever want to dive into that it's a oh, long drawn out story okay. oh yeah okay. it's, yeah i'm surprised you didn't just google the rewired tool my channel doesn't even pop up first you'll see all the videos with millions of views telling that i'm a terrible oh, person oh my god okay. yeah it's, have it's, you done a video on that yourself oh oh yeah yeah and then okay. i took a break to make sure i stayed sober and <laughs> oh wow okay yeah okay. it was it was some crazy shit right but uh but yeah so like i read i read the book from james and peter and i was like cool like it got me into like epistemology and like saying hey why do you think what you think and stuff like that whatever but anyways love that book and then i'm like i'll follow peter and james on twitter right peter is about at about a four or five on Twitter. James out is at like what? out of 10, right? Okay. And then you have James, he's at like a 15, right? But James James in conversation <laughs> and James on Twitter, two different people. You yeah. like uh, before this, and I'm getting caught up on your stuff, like you are, you come across as a very like curious, interested person. Like you like, when I watch you have conversations, I'm like, this dude is fucking curious, right? But on Twitter, that is a different person, right? So, how okay <laughs> how how does that how does that work like i'm, I'm curious because i actually talked to yeah. somebody the other day and they were saying like yeah like twitter's my avatar that's not really me and stuff i'm like i guess you know so yeah, i just yeah, like i'm like yeah, now it's my yeah. opportunity to ask somebody a little bit more about that yeah yeah so yeah, how do yeah. you see that from i guess like uh a moral perspective right like do you okay. feel like you're ever fanning the Ethics. flames because you know okay yeah. like that's where I'm curious. Cause you seem yeah, like effects. you're a good, you seem like a great guy to me, but I'm like, seems like he trolls a little on Twitter. So how does that work? Okay. How does shit posting work into <laughs> the righteous <laughs> cause of nuance? There we um, go. It's uh well, there are ethical um, matters to consider, but first and foremost, uh, there's two levels to it before you even get to the moral aspect or the ethical aspect. There's the there's the game theory of it, and then there's the discourse mm. level of it, right? Okay. So the game theory is about what is able to be communicated through 240 characters yeah. and yeah. how the game of Twitter actually operates by, by distilling information into these chunks. And so mm-hmm. there's two levels of game when I'm doing Twitter, and one is literary game and the other one's a political game. So the mm. liter- the political game is to make a statement or to react 
to something that's going on. And what's going on usually is on, again, and I disparage this constantly, it's going on at the federal level or it's going on the state level it's, or it's going on an ideological level, an intrapersonal or superpersonal mm -hmm. level. And so to take those concepts up there and then to, to kind of take them down and throw them back at, at it and to kind of like... It's like this huge snowball fight with a lot of different words, like the word, the five armies from the Hobbit, but it's, everybody's <laughs> just throwing these snowballs, right? And you don't know which person's on which team or yeah. if they're playing one team in order to position another team later on down the road to get another kind of thing to happen. Yeah. And with regards to federal level politics, with, with, with regards to reacting to the reaction to mm. The Trump, which is what I'm doing, I'm reacting to reactions more than I'm reacting to the action, mostly because the action itself, let's say that an event happens. One six happens, right? Mm -hmm. One six is, uh, uh, one six happens after 2020 happens, <laughs> right? <laughs> so in 2020, what happens is that $2 billion of insurance claims are filed with regards to these political actions that happen yeah. with regards to a certain sort of event that's politically charged and then that is reacted to very distinctly by let's say cnn msnbc mm -hmm. that are playing defense for these people playing defense for blm because it yeah. suits their purposes it suits their purposes kind of ideologically because it kind of seems like this is the righteous cause but also suits their purposes of getting trump out by making trump uh, basically the cause of all these things. And mm. while I think that they're kind of complicit too. So there's this weird kind of game that's happening on a media level with regards to that. One six happens, January six happens, and that entire 2020 can be completely forgotten. Mm -hmm. And these five, six hours at this one spot, that's very uh, symbolically potent spot can now go forth and be used. Yeah. So in, in the wake of one six, all I'm thinking about is not one six because we don't know what happened at one six. Just as like we don't know what happened at Evergreen until somebody spends four years going through all the footage sure. and trying to put it down like I did with Evergreen. So I already know I was trained at Evergreen that all the reactions to the event are going to be sifted through people's wavelength or bandwidth to be able to make sense of the event. And so the real one six happens after one six, the real mm. one six, the one six that everybody's talking about, isn't the one six that happened there with all these people doing this really chaotic action, who, what, when, where, why not everybody's doing the same thing. It, it's, it's a complex event, but Washington post says, okay, this is what this means. Dan rather says, this is what this means. CNN says, this is what this means. And Fox is like, oh, well, we can't do this. We can't do much with this. Right. Yeah. Because we don't know how to figure out what this means because it's basically our side and they're playing this ideological game. But the catastrophizing with regards to one six, that the that one six represents a threat to our democracy is not even debatable. It's not even debatable. It is a threat to our democracy. It's a super important, super potent event. And everything that happened in 2020 was for racial justice, right? Mm -hmm. It's all for racial justice. So what I react when I react to one six is the reaction to this one six that people have made up in their minds. They have this narrative that they're promoting. Dan Rather said something about I'm not over one six and everything that happened after one six until we solve everything that happened. Well, what are you talking about? Like some 
nut jobs like went in there and did a panty raid on the government. I mean, maybe it's an important symbolic thing and it's not good, but is it the most serious thing that's ever happened? And what about all those riots? What about everything in 2020? There's so much cognitive dissonance. So when I pick up and I throw, I'm trying to twist that narrative. And because of the way that I do it, I can't be, I can't be bipartisan with this stuff because I'm in a very progressive place in, you know, in my surroundings and I've seen the end of progressivism at Evergreen. (laughs) And then I, I, I'm watching the West coast go along that and implement that and everything. So I'm kind of pushing, I'm pushing in one way. I'm pushing in one direction, which makes me kind of biased in my content over, over time. You're saying, I, I will just by the basic mechanism of agreement and disagreement, which is how most people sort their content, I yeah. will gain more of more attention from those who I agree with. And my responsibility, if I want to be flexible, is yeah. to then start to play with them and to upset them. And yeah. it helps to have more than one topic to position yourself in. So if, if you think that I'm all Republican and I'm like, I'm not. It's just, I, I, I converge with basically what the Republicans are doing with this one kind of inflection point. And then I'm, I'm on these other fronts too. So with regards to Twitter, you have to look at the Twitter persona as something that happens over time and as a supplement, not as a, what, what's the, what's the word, the awesome word play. I can't remember it. Twitter's a supplement, not a substitution for my entire body of work. My, My interviews on YouTube and then my commentary on YouTube about Twitter. And from the networking that I do on Twitter, that's how I get my interviewees is that I'm like, who's making interesting sense? Who's making yeah. interesting sense? And then, you know, and then I, I pull them out of the networking process of yeah. Twitter, um, which, you know, then sometimes I connect with people. I'm like, listen, I'm shit posting right now because I thought of the cool wordplay, which is the literary side of what I'm doing. So yeah. what I really want to do is this nuanced stuff, but I have to play this game. And know that I'm doing it tongue in, tongue in cheek because all this is is sentence. This is, it's an MMO RPG made yeah. of sentences. That's what it is. Yeah, it's a literary endeavor. So there's that whole literary side of what I'm doing. Yeah, let me let me tell you, Benjamin. That that like I hope the listeners made as much sense of that as I did because I've been thinking about that so much lately. Kind of what mm-hmm. what you said because you know I you know I'm. My my podcast I just started it in May. Uh, it's it's gotten pretty big. I've gotten some notable guests and everything like that, you know. Yeah. And I try. <laughs> I try to ignore me. Talk to you. <laughs> I try to have these like nuanced conversations for people all over the spectrum. I have I have people talking about you know just uh, violence against women, but also people talking about you know the trans debates and the racial debates, all these things. But anyways, what I've noticed mm. is the extreme, the trolling or whatever. That's what gets attention. Right. Yeah. So like you said, like the, the subs, the, you know, that's the supplement to yeah. this thing, to the substance. And, yeah. And I've been debating on it. So maybe, maybe you could give me some, uh, moral slash ethical device because that's where I get, that's where I get fucked up, Benjamin. I'm like, is it, is it ethical of me to kind of do these more extreme views, extreme opinions that I know will get more attention because I think I also have fear because that's what led to my downfall on YouTube. Oh, I knew it was going to shit posted. I knew it. Well, I knew, well, I did click it. I was the, I have a background in marketing and shit like that too. Uh, so okay, okay, I was like, okay. I know, I know the type of uh, thumbnails and titles that are going to get attention, yeah. but a lot of people only look at that and they'll say who you are based on titles and thumbnails and not the content. Right. So I think yeah. that part of it's a fear, right? If I do mm-hmm. that again, if I do what I know what works, 
that can mm-hmm. fucking just backfire, right? But then there's also that ethical part, right? Like, because there's got to be part of you, there's got to be a little part of you where you're like, am I stirring the pot too much? Am I, am I, am I getting people rowdy with trying to use this supplemental uh, or mm-hmm. MMO type game theory to meet mm-hmm. my own ends? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how how do you balance that? But you are I, like, as somebody who I can see you're trying to, you're living for a larger purpose, you're being very utilitarian. Like, I'll do this shit over here to hopefully drive people to my YouTube channel where I'm having nuanced, important conversations. Yeah. Is yeah. that correct? Well, so, so how do you balance all that? Insofar as I use Twitter, it is a sentence uh, publishing machine for me. They call it microblogging. Um, <laughs> and I do aphorisms, I do puns, and then I do political stuff. What do you think gets the most attention? Political. Yeah. So, I mean, people only see that, but I'm doing all those other things, you know, I'm, and usually, usually I don't publish something or I don't post something unless I'm doing some sort of clever wordplay. Like yeah. I have to be, re- I have to be just making people think about what I'm saying, right. By interrupting them. And that's why I haven't published any of my actual books because every sentence is like you, it's like I'm doing something awkward at first, but you're like, oh, he's, he's making me think through how language operates or making me through, think through how narrative operates or how poetry operates. So there's all these things where I'm, I'm doing a lot of meta in that. So mm-hmm. on, there's that, there's that creative side. You're just, you're just playing around and you should be playing around with a lot of things and, and expressing yourself in a lot of different directions. People are going to pay attention to a certain sort of content and they're either going to put you in a box for that and then be confused when you violate what they thought of you or they'll like, they'll completely ignore it because they need you for their own purposes. They need Mm. to say Benjamin Boyce is this thing. And I've done a lot of work within the gender debate and have aligned with the causes of a certain ideological group. And (laughs) they have a certain sort of way of thinking and, and they have a certain sort of, uh, telos or what they want to do. They want to uh, save women or do something about saving women from men or, you know, and, uh, you know, the feminist community is multifaceted and created of a lot of different moving parts and a lot of different independent mm-hmm. people. It also has a lot of people who are there for trauma and who are expressing trauma. And it has a lot of people who don't understand how humor operates, just like the joke, <laughs> at least like many jokes say. So while I produce content specifically within uh, the gender debate or with regards to what it is to be a woman and what how a man and women operate and everything about gender, not just the trans stuff, everything about gender, I do a lot of that stuff because it's fascinating to me. Um, I know that I'm creating content that's serving that community. I'm platforming voices. I'm introducing them to new people and I'm, I'm, I'm lending my platform to people who are unheard or who lower down the totem pole and I'm giving them more views. So I'm actually helping them, but on my terms. So I'm not, I'm not an ally, which is a corrupted term. Ally used to mean we have a, you know, we're, we're working together. Mm-hmm. It now ally means you're basically my support. Yeah. Right. And, and that's not how I do it. So with regards to feminism and anti-feminism, I'm, I'm, balking at the anti-feminists just as much as I'm playing around balking at the feminists and specifically the ideologically motivated people who want content that they agree with, that supports them, that doesn't challenge them because they don't have time to be challenged. They're, tr- they're fighting this great fight. So 
I do a lot of content that turns off or um, causes anti-feminists to get really riled up and like, why is this woman? Why are you not challenging her? You know, she she's a misandrist and da 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 da. And they go in the comments and they rail. And then I do content that the feminists are like, Benjamin, you're a terrible ally. Da 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 da. And and what happens is that. The internet sorts for these people who want to be expressive and the expression actually algorithmically props up my, it boosts the content. So like the actual content was just the discuss discussion that has more content than just what they're reacting to, which would be a joke or a thumbnail. Even mm -hmm. I titled one thing, Irrational Feminism, which was a play on the content of that episode, which was with Erica Bakiloki, who is a Catholic author who goes through and she shows the entire progress of feminism from the rational enlightenment up to mm. the present day. And, and so it's talking about the rational origin and blah, 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 blah. People are like, feminism is irrational. Feminism, you know, like the anti-feminists who are just thinking in that fight mode. And then I did an uh, interview the other day, and this is, I hope this is relevant to what you're asking. Yeah. I'm just, I'm talking about my material because it, it's a methodological choices that I'm making in it. Mm -hmm. I did an interview another day with a woman who is really fighting really hard against gender ideology because it's manifesting these ideas that are completely illogical and then translating them through medicine into a physical reality mm -hmm. that has a bunch of negative consequences. And yeah. she's a brilliant woman. And she's kind of, I guess she's a lesbian. I don't know if that, it doesn't really matter, but she kind of, she's playing to the radical feminist group. The rad fems are like, this is the content that we want. It's created by a woman for women against these creepy men or whatever. And I did an interview with her and we're joking the whole time. We're joking and joking and joking and talking about the matriarchy killing men, you know? So that's why women live longer because men have all the power in the world, but at least women live longer because they kill the men by feeding them bacon wrapped in butter, you know, or whatever. <laughs> yeah. Um, and the way that I cut that was that there's, uh, was that I took the very end of our conversation and I put it at the beginning and I, I was referencing jokes that we were making that you don't understand that why I'm making those jokes until the very end of the episode. And I got a lot of flack for those jokes mm -hmm. from these people are like, why are you, are you, why are you making fun of turfs? Why are you making fun of uh, the matriarchy? And they're like, oh, we established a rapport. So, so it, you get the hook. But the hook isn't, it, the hook is to draw them in, mm -hmm. but so you, you have, there's three parts of this whole content creation game. You have to capture attention, maintain attention, yeah. and then modif modify attention at the end, right? Another yeah. metaphor is that you have to be interesting, but you have to take that interest and get, build that interest like a bank, like the bank. And then you hand it back, they have something more. So yeah. it has to have, like Twitter is really good because of the way that attention operates on that level is like you make a zinger, you make a spice or something like that, or you do a bunch of posts about a spicy thing to variate on the theme. And, and then you, and then you have other forms of content that you are balancing that out. So I've made things, I, I don't like lying and I don't like being wrong. So I only retract things. I've retract three types of things. One is when I'm misinformed. Uh, one is when I'm, uh, when it appears that I don't know the whole story and so I'm making something up. And so I guess uh, a version of lying, but unintentionally, cause I don't try to intentionally lie. Um, 
which is different than manipulation, I guess, but I don't try to lie, lie. And then one is when I say something that's a joke and then the context is terrible. Like, yeah. like I make a joke about something and then some big event happens. So everybody's reading my tweet in reference to this thing that I wasn't thinking about at all because it hadn't uh, happened yet. So, yeah. so, th so there's that. Um, and yeah. it really depends on what kind of person you want and to what degree you want people that are flexible in their thinking to be able to say, okay, he's shit posting right now and I either enjoy or don't enjoy his humor, but he also does all this other stuff too. So I keep abreast of his content and he entertains me or at least tries to entertain me while I'm waiting for him to produce another episode. Right. So yeah, you have yeah. to, you have to keep, you have to keep in the people's back, back of people's minds. So you have to be posting a lot. Yeah. Uh, no, as a fellow content creator, I, I definitely understand what you're talking about, especially with, you know, holding them in, keeping their attention and then What's the, the larger thing? So when it comes to the hook, maintaining attention and then having that kind of larger message, right? So let me tell you, let me tell you where I screwed up on YouTube. Well, I think I okay. screwed up, right? So as you know, yeah, from, I think he, I think you probably didn't, but go on. <laughs> as you know, on YouTube, there's a large like commentary community. There's drama channels where they talk about other YouTubers and everything like that. So basically yeah. as, as somebody, I, I was working at a drug and alcohol rehab cost like 30 grand to go there. If you didn't have insurance, it was a nice rehab here in Vegas. Right. So I was like, Hey, why don't I do like, you know, I was, I was teaching people about uh, recovery and everything and mental health. I was like, why don't I just do a YouTube channel? Wasn't getting any views, right? And yeah. I wanted to help people. I wanted to get as many views as possible so I could help more people. And if it brought in some income, that was cool. Like eventually when I got laid off, it was at the height of my YouTube career uh, and I was making a full-time wage. So it was awesome. But anyways, the, the hack I found was kind of what you did. I was able to look at the drama community. They were talking about these YouTubers, right? And I was like, if I frame it kind of like drama, but I lure them in, I lure, I do do a little bait, right? Okay. They come yeah. in thinking that I'm just another drama channel, but then I start talking about mental health, my own personal experience, and you know, uh, evidence-based therapies and everything. And people loved it. My channel within the first year, I hit a hundred thousand sub, uh, subscribers. It was like nice. boom, it was working, right? But then people started having this weird ethical debate and calling me a, a fake therapist and everything, even though there's not a single video oh, of me saying I'm okay. a therapist, yeah. you know. And yeah. there's there's some weird gray areas, but uh, but yeah. yeah, but yeah. So I was doing that, but I think where I went wrong, I started responding, I started defending myself, I started. I started playing oh. into it, right? And yeah. I think that's what made me look bad. Okay. You know? Okay. So okay. so yeah. how how do you because I'm sure there are misconceptions about you from people who uh for example, the episode you talked about, like people needed to really consume the larger part of the content to really see what you were doing, right? Or yeah. if if somebody only knows you on Twitter, they have an idea of who Benjamin Boyce is. But yeah. me, I went through like hours of your content over the weekend. And I'm like, this yeah. seems like a decent guy, right? So I took that time. Are you, you keep on like making me out to be some sort of warty troll on Twitter. Am I really <laughs> coming across that way? Kind of. Okay. So let me actually right before we hopped on, let me pull up your thing. What was it? No, no. What did you say on Twitter? Wait, here, let me, let me read the quote for you and you can tell me how it comes across. Okay. Gonna teach my toddler dem strategy to hear her cry, quote, racist when she doesn't get what she wants. Racist. <laughs> racist. Well, okay. That, that's a part of the, 
If you look at what the elite Democrats are saying right now, the only like over and over and over again, the only way that they can make sense of what happened in Virginia yesterday is it's got to be the racists. It's mm-hmm. got to be the racists. It's got to be those damn white women, those damn white women. Mm-hmm. And CRT is made up. Those damn white women like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. So it's all the white women's fault. That's what CRT is. That's what yeah. it does, you know, so. And, you know, I don't like being partisan. So, yeah, I did the dim thing because they're just, <laughs> I'm sorry. But at the same time, it's a good joke because you hey, just I, have this I visual. Because <laughs> if that's the, if that's the level of analysis you're doing on why you're losing, you're going to lose more. You're going to lose more and more and more. And humor should wake people up, though it yeah. doesn't necessarily get read as that. Red's, yeah. It gets read as violence, as we know to yeah. certain people. So. Yeah. So, so yeah, to my larger point, like I, like if I if say I had no idea who you were and I just came yeah. across this tweet, if like yeah. this was my first introduction, I'd be like this mother, right? But then I go yeah. to your YouTube channel, I hear your conversations. I see these two yeah. different, you know, two different people. It's so, very stochastic. You don't know who's going to be reading it at any, any given time and you don't know where they're going to be at their day or in their life or what mood they're going to be and how they translate it. And you, mm-hmm. and they don't know where you are. Are you, again, are you three beers deep in <laughs> at a Friday night or are you like five, uh, five beers deep at a Sunday morning hungover, you know, like where are you in yeah. your life when you're thinking this stuff? And that's all it's decontextualized the whole thing scrubs so you just get one chunk and so you play the longer game with regards to what you're saying about uh, apologies yeah that that's the thing how do you say how do you say how do you correct people you're reading me wrong how do you have that sincere conversation when somebody is misreading you the that's a big question that i had to figure out and i think i figured it out um that I only, I, and it's my pen tweet. My, it's my pen tweet, which oh, is a joke. It? It's, it's mm. a joke, but it's being as sincere and silly at the same time. And that's the thing. Like you have to read it as me being sincere and silly at the same time. Cause that's what I'm doing. I, I don't do anything if it's not a portmanteau or an entendre, right? That, that's just mm. how, that's my literary thing. And I, I can't escape that writing, uh, not prompt, but, uh, restraint. So. With regards to people being offended by me, I say something and they're offended by me. To mm-hmm. what degree does their offense owe to them? And what to what degree does their offense owe to me? Mm. Um, to what degree are my words violence and promoting violence and participating in a system of oppression such as patriarchy, racism, etc.? Mm-hmm. And to what degree are they reading that that way? And to what degree are they then using that, right? So I do a tweet that offends a certain group and then they're like, oh, look at what he did. Look at what this did. And I went through with the radical feminist community and not all of them, but a certain very radically charged feminist community. Mm-hmm. I did a series of very offensive tweets and they started off by me using the wrong word. I used the word rationality to describe men and emotionality to describe women. Mm-hmm. And I was talking about intelligence and I was talking about the way in which they benefit each other. It's just two different ways of making sense. But that was read within the feminist doctrine as women are irrational, which is bad, but men are being emotional. They don't care about (laughs) that. But, you know, it's playing into that thing. And then I noticed that I would get huge pushback for using these little trigger words. And Mm -hmm. and the trigger words were being taken out of the context that I didn't even know that they're trigger words. 
And I'm like, okay, so they're triggered by this. Do I need to unflip the trigger? Do I need to apologize? That first time I tried to explain myself and they didn't care. The first time I offended that group, I tried to explain myself and they just, because the swarm came down. Yeah. And they were all in intact mode. So I would make an apology to a single person that I cared about and that I respected. And then they would use that and blow it out. Like, like, so mm -hmm. you can't apologize to a crowd. A crowd is not rational. Uh, well, no, <laughs> there's a word play. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> well, uh, a crowd is not hurt. Uh, I, I, I don't offend a crowd. I offend an individual and either mm. you read me or not. And we have a relationship so I can be in a, in a, in a, a personal relationship and I can be vulnerable to you and I can be rational with you. I can't be irrational to an angry crowd. And anything that I would say will already be read through their anger and their rage and will be more ammunition to mm. sling at me. And when all they're doing is acting out this thing that they just act out over and over and over again. And, I, and then I realized that I'll offend them in about three days, it'll be done. Like yeah. they only have an attention span and they're all collected to be offended. So it's just like this swarm that's buzzing around these different things to be offended by. And it just so happened that my tweet came out on a very boring part of their news cycle, right? Yeah. So there's that level. So if I apologize, I only apologize to people I care about and I only apologize on my terms. I don't argue in comment fields. I'll maybe do one back and forth, but I don't go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and mm. forth. I don't do that. Like, cause uh, one, it takes a lot of effort to come up with a creative way to say something that's obvious. Right. And the, which is my, you know, my problem, um, is that I have to be original or have to be complex. So I can't just go on that back and forth and back and forth thing Two, mm -hmm. it's a waste of time. Three, I'm not changing anybody's mind because they're already in battle mode. So yeah. Twitter's battle mode. And I just throw the things out and I get reactions, but this is the real stuff, right? Yeah. Like this is closer to the real stuff. And this is the stuff that I think will save the internet and save America, which is this, this stuff and the Twitter stuff is important, but. It's just a word game. Yeah. Yeah. I've been, I've been really surprised at, uh, because, you know, I was, uh, you know, I, I've written, I've self published a few books and stuff, but when I blew up on YouTube, my content was mm. sticking to like 10 minutes. Right. Because I'm like, yeah. people's attention fans are sore. But yep. when I finally, yep. it's like, you know what? I read so many books. I'm going to interview authors and stuff. Like I realized mm -hmm. that people are looking for the kind of long form nuanced conversations, which you don't get yeah. on Twitter, which you don't. So what I I've been trying to do to adjust my strategy, I feel like someone is offended whatever i'm like bring it over to email talk to me over yeah, there exactly because i also have to worry about like how you're trying to you know appear to your group and everything like that it's and all performance yeah yeah exactly so so finally <laughs> finally i think you know this kind of ties into what made me want to bring you on was your video about libs of tiktok right uh -huh. so help me understand because <laughs> i think this touches on a few things we've been talking about right like poking fun or talking about, you know, the, the crazy progressives and things like that. Right. Yeah. So lives of TikTok, for those who don't know, go look it up on Twitter. They, they find the worst of the worst of TikTok people, yeah. you know, uh, I made a comment the other day. I think, I think the left does this to Democrats too. Like those videos where they go find a Trump supporter who says the most ridiculous, insane things. And I'm like, yeah. you are finding the worst of the worst. I don't know how much of this is like the larger whole. Right. But anyways, can you break down what, why do you think libs of TikTok is not helpful, but jokes or whatever <laughs> that you might be doing or that okay. James might be yeah. doing yeah. is yeah. for a larger purpose? You know what I mean? 
Okay. So there's different levels of analysis for that. And, um, of course I'm going to sound like a hypocrite because I do one <laughs> thing and I, and I'm criticizing something that I do. I'm criticizing something that I participate in and Ooh. I'm criticizing that, which gave me a platform to begin with, which was the retarded antics of social justice, drunk warriors. Right. And, uh, they, um, what you see with TikTok which is what I try to battle against. Once I started getting into the game of Evergreen, it was to expand the story. It was to expand on those 30 second clips of a professor going completely oh. apeshit on her colleagues, uh, to expand that, to contextualize and always playing a game of a broader thing. So what lips of TikTok is doing is perfect Twitter. It's perfect marketing. It's brilliant stuff. Find the worst of the worst, the most cloying, annoying, viscerally reactive stuff that you just like, or you're just or your whole body just you're watching this person like doing crazy things and i specified in the video there's different things that are going on one is like professionals or adults like fully fledged adults they're yeah. just being crazy and indoctrinating and being proud of their indoctrination and being proud of being in a position of power enforcing this stuff on children and then you have the 17 18 19 year olds that are immersed in this ideology that is irrational is anti-rational specifically with gender uh which is just is crazy stuff and they're still trying to find their identity and there's probably a lot of loneliness going on in there there's probably mm -hmm. some mental health issues not necessarily disorders but just issues of people groping for not just status but using status to solve their problems right so there's the the tiktok game is still about status but mm -hmm. especially with the underdeveloped children or young people or young adults, they, they're using status to try to solve another problem that's at a yeah. deeper level. And so what we're seeing when we see these videos is that there's a disturbed person caught up in a disturbing ideology and then incentivizing by a completely insane social media structure. Yeah. And none of that is being talked about. What's being talked about is look at how crazy the libs are. Look at how crazy the libs are. Look at how crazy the libs are. And that's fine. And so far as we're talking about the ideology that's destable and we're, we're critiquing the, the higher order system that incentivizes that behavior being social media. But the fact that there's a human being there, if we, if we lose connection with the human being, and that's mm. why I try not, I, I do, I don't, I try not to make personal attacks. I, and I try not to argue with the person. And when I'm in an argument on Twitter, what I see a lot of people doing is attacking me personally and accusing me and, and, uh, impugning all mm -hmm. these motivations on me based on a clever sentence that I wrote, whether or not it was really clever. I tried, <laughs> right. But they're, they're doing all this you stuff and you are doing this and you are doing this and you are doing this. And I'm like, well, you don't know any of that. So I'm not going to argue with you on that. I will bring it back to questions, clarifications, and not attack. I'm not going to attack you because I'm, I'm attacking an idea or I'm attacking yeah. a reaction to an idea, or I'm attacking somebody with a lot of power, like Dan Rather, who says yeah. he's a journalist and a storyteller. I'm saying, well, which are you more of in this instance? Are you the journalist or the storyteller? And how much of our, of our journalism is storytelling? and not journalism yeah. anymore with regards to that stuff. So with, I forgot the question. I, you know, the, the thing is, is that, oh, with lips of TikTok, there's no analysis there. It gets shared over and over and over again by everybody I'm connected to. And so we're 
again, like I said in the video, we are conditioning ourselves to have a very narrow response to negative stimulus. And what yeah. is, and that's a problem on a group level, because as Jonathan Haidt says, uh, morality binds and blinds. So what we're going to do is say, these are the bad guys. Look at how bad they are. Right. And, and we, like we were talking about with critical race theory, we can cherry pick or nut pick, whatever it is, all these different instances of egregious teaching and stuff. But does that really solve the issue at play, which is what do we do about race in America? How do we have all these conversations about what education should be and should do? And how do we strain ideology or to what extent do we want ideology and what kind of ideology do we want in our schools? All those questions are, are, are put out of the way on us all agreeing that they're the bad guys, all yeah. agreeing that this is toxic. And then yeah. ourselves being so righteous and, you know, in our moral indignation of this stuff that we yeah. then start to not be able to criticize ourselves. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I'm open to criticism. I, I, you know, but it has to be in the format where I know that the other person's not going to use me for their own games yeah. other than them becoming better than me at, 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 at Twitter yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And I, I think you touched on something important there where we, you know, especially like, I think what, you know, uh, what we're talking about with the TikTok, maybe it's, it's a, it's, it's a couple things. It's attacking the person rather than the idea and where it mm -hmm. came from. Right. And that's, mm -hmm. that's just a big no, no, right? Like you're talking about people come to you personally and give you all these characteristics or talk about your morality or your, and, and nobody knows that nobody can yeah. tell you what you believe and stuff. But then also there's the punching down aspect, right? When you take a 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 year old kid and say, here's their TikTok, here's the dumb shit they're saying. Yeah. People are naturally going to attack that person, talk about how dumb they are, how uninformed yeah. they are or whatever. And there's nowhere else to really go. So do you see that kind of being the issue? Somebody said that we need to bring back bullying or something like <laughs> bullying has always been there in high school. Like a 17 year old isn't, shouldn't just like not be regulated by their social environment. I'm like, okay, well, one, are you 17? Are you in high school? How does thousands upon thousands of adults attacking a teenager at all commiserate with the bullying that happens in high school? Right. And yeah. not that bullying is totally, you know, whatever that regulatory process of bullying manifests beneficially, there's got to be some sort of benefit to that with regards to, and, and a lot of detriment too, but that's how kids kind of regulate each other, especially yeah. the crazy ones. Um, but that doesn't work on the internet. The internet is a completely different thing. So yeah, uh, if you're the bully, you know, the punching up, punching down thing is really weird. Cause that itself is weaponized. What, like what we saw with Chappelle, it's like, oh no, there, there's a genocide. Don't ever make fun of these people. You know, like, okay, yeah. you get whatever you want and we will never question you ever again. Is that the answer? No. Yeah. Um, and with regards to this is the problem, like there is a point to ridicule. There's a point to pointing out somebody who's errant and wrong. And on the other side of the gender thing, I, I hosted a man who opened up really wide about some really bad places that he was in and that, uh, you know, like just some bad stuff that, that he like really depressed state of like on the edge, like really on the edge. And he totally yeah. opened up and because it was about male sexuality, the Radfims took that and then like completely tore him apart. Like this Jesus. very vulnerable man was then used as an icon for this war against trans ideology. Right. And it's like, 
all the young men could have benefited from seeing the end result of compulsive sexual behavior. It's like if I had somebody who was just, just barely got out of killing themselves on heroin. Right. And, and we had a really deep conversation about that. And somebody who's like from mad, you know, mothers against drugs, just like, look at this freaking heroin addict. And (laughs) it's like, no, 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 no. Heroin's not good. I'm not apologizing for heroin, but, but this is, we need to see that. And there's so many lessons to be learned from that. So, you know, I, I produce stuff that, that offends them, right. That offends Mm -hmm. the, the rad femmes and, and, uh, you know, I, I use offensive language. And I, I joke about things which they take as me denigrating them and uh, attacking them where they're vulnerable. I never do that to an individual. I never do that to an individual. Yeah. I only do that to the ideology or people who are completely possessed by the ideology, who are just talking point, talking point, talking point, talking point, talking point, right? Yeah. Who are basically synonymous with the ideology, but they're not being vulnerable. They're just acting out. A yeah. Yeah. That's uh, I, I, I tweeted about it earlier. I had an episode while back with the moral philosopher, Kurt Gray, him and you mentioned Jonathan Haidt, him and those two disagree on some just moral philosophy. Ideas. Oh, great. Anyways, anyways, I had him on to talk about the moral philosophy of cancel culture. Is he the good one or the bad one in this debate? Uh, it depends on who you're Haidt. talking to. <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Haidt, uh, his book, The Righteous Mind, it, it opened up my eyes to mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. political conversations and having more empathy and understanding where people are from, how they were raised, what they value. So, but I understand Kirk Gray's, you might enjoy that episode. There's a lot of nuances and stuff. Well, yeah, I see what you're saying, but, you know, yeah, but, uh, but when I had Kurt on, because I was trying to understand when I got canceled, right? Because the, the argument against me was, you're not a licensed professional. You're talking about mental health and addiction, right? Uh, through, you know, and I, I was like, I'm sharing my personal experience. I'm sharing what psychologists say. I'm sharing what the research says, right? And they, they took it to a level of, you are killing people, right? And I'm like, whoa, let's dial that back. But yeah. in, the, in the world of cancel culture, like you're talking about this, this young man who opened up about his most vulnerable stuff. No, he was a middle-aged man. Yeah. yeah when, when they, when they feel that they have the moral high ground, anything goes just all bets are off. They, you know, people were threatening to rape and kill my mom. Like she was actually getting messages. Right. And I'm just like, how can you morally justify this? Right. Like you feel in so the name righteous. of morality. That's the great thing. Yeah, that's, that's what just a great thing. That's what I really started getting into all these books <laughs> and trying to understand them. Like, how do uh, people do this? And that's, that's what yeah. I dislike about the like, culture wars and everything, because once yeah. you feel that you have the moral high ground, anything goes like you saw with the Dave Chappelle protest, right? They, they physically attacked that guy and broke his stick and, you know, and everything. And it's just like, how are you justifying this? Like you're, Repent, you're doing motherfucker, repent, yeah. motherfucker. Repent. Yeah. They were shouting that at him. It was like, what is this? Yeah. Like and the inverted, what, uh, the, the, that one Baptist tr- Westboro, like it's yeah. like trans Westboro. It's like the weirdest thing. Yeah. And I've just been fascinated with human behavior. Like, how do we do yeah. this? How do we, how do we reach that point of dissonance where we can yeah. justify these things? Like I'm trying to save lives. Therefore I can threaten yours like that. Yeah. That blows my mind. But, uh, you know, the, like. Go ahead. Thing is, is that we, I think we're, again, this is the problem with libs of TikTok. This is the problem with, uh, with internet culture is that we're acculturated to give those people a bigger footprint in our understanding of the world because we overestimate threats evolutionary. That's the wise thing to do. But what happened at Evergreen, all those crazy things that were happening was 2%, 3% at most of the student body was involved in that, but that becomes the definition of Evergreen. 
but once you get into the story, it's like, okay, the institutional administrative structure was behind this. And, you know, 20 teachers were behind this and everybody else was silent supporting this, you know, but the, the, the oversized output of the activists that claim one, they, they heightened everything up into life and death so that nobody can think or question because it's life and death. And then two, they self elect themselves as the you know, representatives of these entire groups of people. So they're dehumanizing everybody <laughs> that yeah. they're representing and saying, this is, we represent them. And then they're t taking their behavior. And uh, again, public eye sees mm -hmm. that those people represent all those other people. So it's hugely yeah. unjust. Yeah. With regards yeah. to that. Something I was, uh, you know, in my conversation with John McWhorter and some other people just talking about the woke stuff is here's, here's where I would get offended is, is the mm. infantilization that comes along with all of this, right? Like, don't say these things. It could drive somebody to suicide. Like we're, we're, we're completely just neglecting like any kind of human resilience, right? Like, we're like, everybody yeah. is so sensitive that if anything is said, if anything, you know, any words, that's how words become harm, right? Like you yeah. can't take this and you're such a fragile, just riddle baby that you will just off yourself. And like, yeah. As a father, like, I would never want to teach my son that. I don't want to teach him that we have to bubble wrap this entire world to make yeah. sure that you are never hurt, never have to question or, you know, uh, and I think it also stops having conversations with people like saying, hey, like, if you are offended by something, why can't we just have like a conversation about it? But I think, you know, one of the bigger mm -hmm. things is too, as somebody who was an insane drug addict until I was 27 years old, my mental filter is fucked up. Right. I can have somebody say something and it comes in as you are just talking down to me. You are calling me names. You know what I mean? And I think uh -huh. that's been completely eliminated from the equation. Is that is it possible that you interpreted this thing wrong? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, do you ever see that when like you see somebody freaking out or anything like that? Like maybe they interpreted something as something that it wasn't. Well, it's about emotional regulation and, you know, going through the process of being a public intellectual is really <laughs> interesting because you're kind of a brand. And then what you're talking mm. about, I've gone through that too, where I'm like, well, I need to apologize to this crowd. And so they're not treating you as a person, they're treating you as a persona. And then you try to bring your person like, no, I'm a personal, I'm a person. And then, and you're like, you're trying to upload this stuff into this cloud of these people that don't really care about you. They're just using you. And then, and then what do you have left over, you know, and then, and they're completely beholden to what everybody else thinks about you. So there's this process of building barriers around what I do and using as much of my personal, my personal wisdom, my personal growth and my personal caring and my soul, my spirit and all that stuff, putting as much of that into the internet, but still reserving this divide between the public mm. and the private and the public and the private and the way that internet kind of like latches onto you. It's always in our face. It's always in our yeah. mind. It's really difficult to do that. And when people are really going there, especially through social media and really just flipping out or really like making a mountain of, out of a molehill to whatever degree. They're not really doing anything other than expressing and they're not regulating their expressions. And my, yeah. my, uh, my time in preschool, which is around 15 years on and off of like dealing with two, three, four, five year olds. It's like, okay, there's what there's, let's say you're wounded. You scraped your knee and then there's your reaction to you being scraped and then there's the reaction to you being hurt and the, you know, like there's the nerves 
of pain going up to your brain, but then there's this emotion that's much bigger than that scrape. Yeah. It's much bigger than that scrape. So the job for the teacher, insofar as I can teach somebody at that level, um, is to model like, no, you control your emotion so we can deal with the problem yeah. and your emotions are inflating the problem. So again, it's like if something happens 2000 miles away that somebody gets killed because of something that's racial or whatever. And then we bring that into ourselves and then we project ourselves, we, we, we heighten the threat that's way over there that we receive through all these, uh, mediums, virtual mediums. And then we bring that to us and then we're always in a state of, of harm and threat, or we have a bunch of trauma in our lives. And then yeah. we use these causes outside of us to work that out, but it doesn't actually end up working any of that out. It just constantly perpetuates yeah. that. It comes back to trying to recognize the human through the medium of all their expressions on Twitter and giving them leeway. You know, if they're, if they're really offended, it's probably not because of me. It's probably because of a scrape that they got in real life yeah. and trying to say, okay, uh, you know, knowing when to hold them and knowing when to fold them, you know, and, and yeah, or whatever, you know, like knowing when to joke and knowing when not to joke. And the thing is, even if you know when to do that, people are coming from all these other places and time and state. So they're going to take it out of context constantly. So it's really difficult unless you invest yourself as a human being over time, where I go through all these different moods and you go through all these different moods and I'll recognize you when it's time or when I can be rational, I'll try to be rational. And when I'm joking, I'll try to do it in a way that, uh, isn't personally offensive <laughs> to you, you know, or doesn't yeah. denigrate your humanity, you yeah. know? Well, I've never been personally offended by your tweets, so. Well, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but here, so let me, let me wrap this up with that, with one last banger of a question, because oh. here's what I'm curious about. Okay. What, what is Benjamin Boyce's overall goal? Like with the content that you create, with the guests that you bring on, with the conversations that you're having, like, what is your, what is your thing that you're trying to accomplish or it like is it for you are you trying to open up your own mind through these conversations are you trying to expose other people to conversations like what it, what what is your goal with this stuff that you're doing well one it's to be immortal right? <laughs> upload enough going, of myself going all right well we we don't it, it it won't happen until after my life I'll, I'll die and then i'll either be immortal or not but i'm trying to mm. upload as much of myself into the cloud that the ai can represent me and actually variate my way of thinking Ooh. through language and actually start to learn how to be witty and playful and you know and then also personable too so there's one way i'm trying to affect the ai um and become a mortal part of that group brain um which is immaterial but I think that there's a reality inside of our life. I think there's a life inside of life. I think that there's a, uh, no, no, I, I know. And I, I feel that there's this reality that is filled with consequence and cause and effect, but there's also this, this thing that we don't really have language for, or all the language that we have for is encrusted with misinterpretation because we're trying to talk about something that is a higher order than our rational mind and our discursive mind. But it's like this human spirit, this, this human spirit that connects us to the world and the world is always giving us gifts and lessons and pouring through us constantly. And we get stuck and things come up and we lose sight of that. And all of this culture war stuff is just, um, like a canvas in order to explore the human spirit and try to like, try to uncover a little bit more of that in myself. Oh, um, and if I can, you know, 
I don't know if I can do anything for anybody else. I really, on that level, yeah. the human spirit would hopefully if, if I can be a channel for that, I want to be the broadest channel possible, but it's up to that spirit to do that work. But I want to be prepared to do that. And I want to provide a place for that. And so I also really care about women and children and men and my brothers and sisters in the world. I just want to care for them and care, you know, not just by expressing care, but giving them tools and modeling behavior that I think will help them care for themselves and each other, you know, and just kind of be good and also be clever and smart and a dick when I need to be, you know? Yeah. And just be a human, you know? <laughs> yeah. No, I think that, yeah, that, that's definitely one of the things that we have to include there, but yeah, I'll, I'll say this. Like one thing that I love about your content is just the, the curiosity, because I truly think that if we were more curious, well, she's my patron saint curiosity, she, she yeah. is, she is, she's my patron saint. <laughs> it's, it's working out. I, I love it. But where, where can, uh, my people find oh, you, okay. where, uh, where can they find your, uh, your, your literary prose on Twitter that you're doing yeah. and, uh, and yeah. your YouTube channel and all that. Well, if you want to save yourself from my incredibly partisan and low grade thinking shit posting, then don't go to Benjamin A. Boyce on Twitter. Um, <laughs> also, if you want to see me uh, go beyond the sentence level way of making sense, you can find my literary endeavors, but be warned, it takes work <laughs> at alias to dream .substack.com, And I'm sure the link will be down there in the description and my interviews. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to change the name, or the name of this. Cause I think that it's trademarked. So I'm kind of screwed right now until I talk to a copyright lawyer or something like that, but it's called calm versations or the voice of reason. And that's on Spotify and, uh, anchor. And also my videos can be seen on Spotify now. Lucky me. Ooh. And yeah, I, I was allowed into that, uh, early program. Um, but also my YouTube channel is Benjamin A. Boyce and, uh, come along and bring your thoughts and, uh, play with me in the comments. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Chris. It was great to, to speak with you. I want to have you on my channel and then off, off this recording, I want to figure out how you get all these people who ignore me to not ignore you. There we go. We can, we can, it'll be a mutually beneficial relationship. <laughs> yeah, man. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. We'll do this again. Cheers. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Benjamin. I told you, I told you it was, it was an interesting conversation. I remember after recording too, my girlfriend even came up to me. She's like, were you all right? It seems like you were like pushing back and, and, and stuff like that. And usually on my podcasts, I, I just bring on authors to talk about their books and just listen to them and stuff like that. But with Benjamin, I knew there was some things that I wanted to ask him about. And yeah, like it's, it's all, it's all good. Like, I just love having conversations with people um, because like I said, and I'll, I'll say it again is we, we all agree on way more things than we actually realize. And yeah, this was a really fun conversation and I absolutely love what Benjamin's doing over on his channel. And if you, if you need a shining example of someone who knows how to ask questions, be curious, get into somebody else's mind, their thought process and everything like Benjamin is the dude to watch, like just watching his stuff, like preparing for this interview and everything. Like I picked up tips, like just on how to be more curious about, you know, who other people are, what their experience is, what they've gone through and everything like that. So head down to the description, make sure you're following Benjamin over on Twitter for some of his antics over there, but also subscribe to him over on YouTube. All right. But yeah, 
Uh, make sure you also check down in the description. Follow me over on Instagram and Twitter at The Rewired Soul. You can also subscribe to my YouTube channel, The Rewired Soul, over on YouTube. I've been uploading some of the interviews over there. I still need to catch up. There's a lot that I'm still working on getting uploaded. Um, but yeah, if you're new here, if this is your first time at the podcast, make sure you're following or you're subscribed. Um, and if you like this conversation with Benjamin, uh, make sure you share it. Share it over on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever. All right. That really helps out the podcast. It helps spread the word. And something else that really helps out is if you head over to Apple, Apple Podcasts takes two seconds, leave a rating, leave a review. All right. But some other ways to support the podcast, uh, like Ben, I write. I have self-published quite a few books on mental health, addiction recovery, uh, my experience being canceled. I wrote a book about that. Those are all available at therewiredsoul.com. And if uh, mental health is something that you want to improve within yourself, it's a huge deal for me. There's also an affiliate link down below for BetterHelp Online Therapy. It's a service that I personally used. And speaking of getting canceled, it's one of the main things that helped me get through that insane situation. I was using uh, BetterHelp Online Therapy. I had a phenomenal therapist. So if you want some affordable online therapy with a licensed therapist from your state, Make sure you check out that affiliate link for better help online therapy. All right. But another huge thanks to Benjamin for coming on and chatting. And I'm really glad I was able to, uh, yeah, get to know him a little bit. Um, so yeah, make sure you're following him, subscribe to his YouTube channel. And for all of you out there, uh, last week, I think we did two episodes this week. I might have three episodes for you, maybe four. There's some new books coming out. There's some other episodes that I've had uh, just kind of pending for a while as I slow down and focus on some other projects. But stay tuned this week. We've got a bunch of really interesting conversations. We're going to be talking about calling out bullshit science. We're going to be talking about some critical race theory and the 1619 project and some other interesting topics. So make sure that you stay tuned, all right? But other than that, have an amazing rest of your day and I'll see you next time.